Go ahead and take note of our questions, and as we make our, our transition, uh, I just want to say uh, it is definitely a good to be here this morning with everyone, good to gather with, uh, with, with the church. Um, I love gathering every, every Lord's Day, and uh, in particular, this, this Lord's Day, I hope that you uh, understand that it is very uh, special in particular in the life of our, uh, our congregation, um, in the life of our, our church. Um, we, are, we are at the one-year mark of our, um, of our covenanting together and affirming one another in membership, affirming elders uh, a year ago, uh, Sunday, today. So um, really, what, a, what, what good news, what great news, what, what grace it is to, to gather then with, with each other on, on, uh, on this day. Um, amazing, right? Uh, very, very grateful, very thankful. Questions are up on the screen. I'll read those for you. How does Jesus expose the nature of the false teaching of the Pharisees? Actually, I'm not reading for you. I'm reading for the podcast listeners. What are the four questions in discerning false teaching? What are the four questions in discerning false teaching? And how can we corporately and individually respond to the glory of Christ and the gospel over the false teaching? That's a little bit longer question. The questions will continue to stay up on the screen. We have a lot to do, so I'm going to jump right in this morning. Uh, we'll be covering a bunch of text as well, uh, so uh, they'll, they'll have most of that put on the screen for you as we go, so just follow along as, as, as well as you can in, in that regard if you want to look it up, but just take, take note. So our, our passage this, this morning that we are, we are, are studying is, uh, is, is one that is probably pretty familiar to us. Um, if, if you've read ahead, you can see what it is. Um, it is the, uh, the, the do not judge, take the log out of your own eye, sucker, before you point anything out in me kind of thing. Uh, we've heard these lines used um, all the time. These two lines are used frequently whenever a Christian attempts to speak any kind of moral, uh, um, moral clarity in, in our world today. Uh, even to Christians, when we quote these things, this moral clarity and so on, these verses will be thrown back at us. Uh, frequently in, in popular media, when discussing maybe a certain cultural situation that's uh, taking place, or, or, or maybe it's the, uh, you know, the downfall of another politician, what's new, um, you know, they'll get this group of people together in a panel, and sometimes they'll invite the, the token Christian pastor or religious leader to, to show up, and, and they'll often ask, so what is the Christian perspective behind this situation? Right? They'll ask it. We're like, we really want to know. We're really... And then they'll say, this is what the Bible teaches. This is how, it, how Jesus taught these things. And one of the other panelists, like right on cue, or maybe it's even the host themselves, would, would, would come out with their, gotcha. Gotcha. Didn't Jesus say... Judge not, lest you be judged, in their King James. And every person knows this passage. Our culture knows this passage well. And they know it in King James too, right? That's the one that you're going to 
that, that, that you're going to get. And this token Christian guy I was put on there, and stuck in this gotcha moment, right? And, and is this what Jesus meant then? Is, is that what Jesus meant by judge not? Judge not and you will not be judged. Is that, is that what Jesus meant? People don't know anything about Scripture. They don't know anything about Jesus or God. They, they probably would know very little difference between even the Old Testament or the New Testament. But this text has been used to justify so much wickedness and debauchery. But is that what Jesus intended as our justification in, in continuing in sin? And most people have a misunderstanding of this passage. And you let, you let anyone feel any kind of disapproval or, or dislike or criticism, and, and these verses will just come out so quick. I, I've even heard um, legalists use this passage. And you're like, huh? Yeah. And, and, and confronting them in their legalism and their, their unbelief in the gospel and in particular points, and, and you're imposing your... Your, your will, your rules, your laws upon other people, and it's binding, and it's a, and it's a burden. And I'll, they'll throw this, don't judge me. That's what Jesus said. You have no right to judge me. I, I can do what I want. I, I find that hilarious when that, when that happened to me. I, I was just astounded. Is that what Jesus meant? Is it, is it also maybe the verse that we use sometimes in our hearts where we justify not wanting to confront someone in sin? Who am I to judge? Is that what Jesus meant by this passage? So I think what's going to help us understand this passage is context, right? Context, context is king in hermeneutics, right? Interpretation, how to understand Scripture. So let's, let's do that. So let's read it before we start talking about it. Let's read the passage together, and then we'll start talking about it. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Verse 39. He also told them in a parable, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take that speck out of your eye? when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So who's Jesus talking to here? Remember last time, Jesus is talking to his disciples, right? He's preaching to his disciples here this this, this message, this, this new gospel-centered ethic that those who have been transformed by the gospel... Those who have been transformed by the gospel, renewed by the Spirit, that here is what living in relationship to God and relationship with, with others look like. Those who love you and those who hate you. This is how we live in relationship in this fallen world. We give mercy and we give grace, as our Father in heaven has done for us and to us. But our passage this morning 
Not only do we need to know who he's speaking to, but who is he speaking about? Who is he speaking about? Now, Jesus has faced a lot of opposition from a particular group that we've seen so far in Luke, the Pharisees. And see, so the Pharisees were, were a particular party, teachers of the law that had certain views about the law, not too far off from some of the other guys, but they had their own particular views, and Jesus has had confrontations with these guys. And these guys would, would teach the law. Right? They would, they were, a lot of them were priests, and they were teachers and lawyers and scribes, and, and they, would, they would teach the law. They would stand up, they would interpret the Scripture according to what they believed, and, and that's what they did. That's what the Pharisees did. And, and Jesus faced off with these guys already several times in, in Luke about what they believed and what was incorrect and what was, what was wrong. And what we've already seen so far is, is Jesus has shown us that their interpretation, their understanding from, from its foundation is, is pretty messed up at best. And therefore, it has been misapplied so bad that we see Jesus go after these guys in really, really strong ways. And for example, Matthew 23 is, is filled with these very strong ways Jesus um, gets after these guys. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Matthew 23 uh, today, uh, just a, a, few, a few different verses. But he, he pronounces these woes on these guys. You remember the woes from previously? The woes, the, the cursed, right? So he pronounced these seven woes in Matthew 23. And there, there are things like, woe to you hypocrites, woe to you blind guides, woe to you Pharisees who, who completely neglect the whole purpose of the law. Woe to you whitewashed tombs, which means you look good on the outside, but you are absolutely dead, disgusting, and nobody wants anything to do with you on the inside. Woe to you Pharisees, you are like dirty cups. So this is what Jesus is doing here in our passage this morning. He is exposing to us and attacking these guys by disarming these landmines that these people have put out before, before people the disciples have laid out through their religion of works. They're totally missing the purpose of the law, heaping burdens and rules and regulations and of, of works upon the people, all in the name of the law, which was not the intent of the law. The, the law was not to heap burdens of works and, and crush people under this false religion of external purposes, but it was to show us the righteousness of God in light of our sin and then point us to a need of the Savior so that when the Savior comes, he'll say, I'm ready. And they missed it completely. So here's a couple marks of these guys that he gives. First, the mark of being unloving. Verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Right? So looking back at these, the, the command from Jesus to his followers, who is he telling them not to be like? The Pharisees. And, and these are the, the characteristics of the, the Pharisees. Their, their heart to, to judge in a, in a way that already brings condemnation on people. Not a, not a judgment for restoration and renewal that leads people to repentance, but condemnation that is unforgiving, that is ungiving. 
And this is how we, despite how we are treated, how we are hated, abused, taken advantage of by our enemies, no matter how we are hated or, 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 or how we are not loved, we cannot go with a, with a particular bias in doing them wrong. But we do them good and we give mercy and grace even to those who don't deserve it. That is the definition of grace. We give grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it. But the nature of the Pharisees and the false teachers that we see here in this passage and what they have been doing has been served to blind and burden, bind, I'm sorry, bind and burden so many with their judgment and their condemnation and their unforgiveness. So they're first, they're marked by being unloving. Second, they are marked by their blindness. They're marked by their blindness. Jesus changing his approach and how he's going to teach us. He's going to give us an illustration, uh, a parable to show us how bad these false teachers are. How bad these Pharisees are. Look at verse 39. He told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Now, I want to tell you that Jesus is not being insensitive to blind people. If anyone who's ever been more sensitive and kind and gracious to blind people is Jesus, right? But this is a common saying. It was a common saying in the day. It's a common saying to us. And it makes absolute sense, right? right? I, I love this. This is, this is great. It doesn't take a, 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 a rocket scientist or a, a, a high Pharisee or teacher of the law to understand this, 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 uh, this uh, parable, right? It, it doesn't, uh, these guys aren't asking Jesus once, uh, Jesus, can you explain that? This isn't the parable of the sower. This is obvious. There's, there's not some deep meaning about, oh, two blind guys walking around. I wonder what that means, if the other one's leading them around. There's, there's, there's no skepticism here. This is very obvious, right? So for us, if two blind guys get into a car and they start it up and they're going to go somewhere, what's going to end up happening? They're going to end up in a ditch. They're going to end up in a house. They're going to end up through a fence. They're going to end up into another, another car. They're going to both end up in a pit. They're both going to end up dead. If blind leads the blind, they're both going to end up dead. And Jesus says, you following these guys, you're going to end up dead. If you think your, your works, if you think your, your external, I dressed up for this part, your external good looks, I didn't, I just figured that out because I look like a hypocrite. Your external good looks makes you look good then you're going to die. You're going to go into a pit. And this is, this is what Jesus is getting at. Right? The Pharisees accused Jesus of many things. They, they, they accused him of being a sinner, a demon, uh, a person who eats with tax collectors, a friend of sinners, a glutton, a drunk, a partier. But Jesus constantly went after them for one main thing. You are a blind guide. You are blind so if you follow Pharisees and you follow false teachers, they're going to lead you straight to the pit with an end that is death. Why? Because they are blind. And, and here is why false teachers are so dangerous. And this is why Jesus goes after these guys so much and why they're so dangerous. is because they take the same scripture, 
They take the, the same Scripture and seemingly pointing out the, the, the same God, but their path to getting to righteousness was completely wrong. So they sounded good and they looked good, so if you put those two together, then they must be right. Jesus says to these guys in John 5.39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is to bear witness about me. Meaning, meaning you search the Scriptures, you know the Scriptures back and forth, you're, you're varsity, we get it. But you miss the whole point. And it all points to me. Your blindness is missing the whole point of Scripture. This is what Matthew 23 gets at in, in talking about the Pharisees, describes the woes to them for putting these rules and regulations on people and they twisted them for their, own, for their own benefit and for their own authority, but they don't have that authority. So they are marked by their blindness. Number three, they're marked by their, their, their false teaching. Look at verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. Right? Another simple parable. Simple parable here. Now here's here what we understand here. Pharisees, are men. Finite men. They are not God. So if you follow Pharisees, and you follow scribes, and you follow false teachers who are just men, then your end is going to be just like them. Not only in death, but you're only ever going to be as good as they are. You're only going to be as good as they are. You're just going to look good on the outside. You're just going to look the part, but you're still going to remain blind. You're still going to remain dirty and dead inside. We've been seeing over and over again in, in Luke that Jesus is God. They're men. Jesus is God. That He is the authority to teach like none other, to heal sicknesses and disease and injuries, to cast out demons, and even the authority to forgive sins. He is the Son of Man, the Son of God. So when Jesus says, follow me, He says, follow me and I will make you something no man can't make you. I will make you an heir to the kingdom of God. I will make you an heir to the kingdom of God. They can only get them looking good on the outside for this life. But Jesus can bring us to, to be heirs of the kingdom of God. You can follow the teaching and the religion of men, and you're only going to get as far as they are. But I, but God, but Jesus says, if you follow me, how far do you think I can get you? Last one, number four, marked with their hypocrisy. They're marked by their hypocrisy. This is coming from verses 41 and 42. I'm not going to read it over again because we know what that is, the speck and the log. But if you think about this example, this is a ridiculous example. right? And that's the point. The point is to show how this is really ridiculous. And if it takes you picturing a dude walking around with a two-by-four sticking, sticking through his eye and you're just kind of walking around going, man, oh, man, what's going on with my eye? Right, then do that. Because that's how ridiculous Jesus is meaning this to be. The level of hypocrisy of these guys is that ridiculous. So just to give you a, a, a Reformation example, um, the, the Roman Catholic Church still today 
teaches that, that priests are to live their lives celibate. And this was certainly the case as well back during the time of the, uh, of the Reformation. If you don't know what celibate means, we'll talk later, right? They're not allowed to get married, right, and among other things. Um, but there was this cardinal back in the Reformation, I can't remember his name, but this cardinal that when he died, he had 14 children, all from mistresses. Like, that is the level of hypocrisy that Jesus is pointing out here. You teach one thing, but your life is riddled with wickedness and burdens. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. This is the Jesus. This is the image that he's getting for us to understand. That's the problem with the Pharisees. They force on everyone else to be moral and to be good in in certain ways, but they themselves were disasters or train wrecks. I mean, just for for example, John chapter 3 talks about a Pharisee named Nicodemus who goes to Jesus in the middle of the day. I'm waiting for someone to say, no, that's not what happened, because that's not what happened. He went to Jesus in the middle of the night. Why? Why would you do anything in the middle of the night? Why would you go to Walmart in the middle of the night? Because you need something you don't really don't want many people to see, right? Or whatever it may be. You do something that other people don't want. And that's what he's doing. He comes to Jesus, and this is what he confesses to Jesus, a Pharisee. He says, Jesus, I know you're from God. I know you're from God. I, I, mean, I see the things you do, and you must be from God. He says, what have I got to do to be saved? And we know the answer, what Jesus says. Jesus says, you must be born again. But do you see the hypocrisy there? Right? During the day, he's saying Jesus is a devil. And at nighttime, he says, I'm a wreck. What, how can I be saved? This is the level of their hypocrisy. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. This is from Matthew 23, verse 25 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, you first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. Can I go on? Do I have to go on? What's not being said about these hypocrites is, is, is not that you have to be perfect in order to minister to people. That's not what we're talking about here. But when you pretend that there's nothing wrong with you and that you're okay, then you're a hypocrite. But we, we, don't, we, we don't pretend. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. It is okay for us to come in every Sunday and be like, I'm a wreck. But Jesus is not. But Jesus is not. And yet, the blind hypocrisy of false teaching that completely misses the log of their sin in their own eye but yet feel this incessant need to point out in others. I mean, do we have to look at the examples of TV preachers and famous preachers who have fell? We, call, we say fall, but they jumped. No, we don't. So there's the four marks. 
But there's always been false teachers in the church. I'd like to say that after Jesus you know, died, rose again, and, and they all kind of died away too, but there's always been false teachers in the church. They didn't, they didn't go away. When we read the rest of the New Testament, each book pretty much universally points to the same warning and the same teaching to correct against false teaching. Let me show you just a few of those. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 17. We'll put that on the screen for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. For we are not like so many, what? Peddlers. Peddlers of God's word, but men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God we speak in Christ. He's speaking of people who have found a way to, to make money to sell God's Word. Second Peter chapter 2, 1-3 through three, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false, false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in their destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow in their sensuality, and because of them fall away from the truth and will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Galatians 1, starting in verse 6. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in grace, the grace of Christ, and turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you the gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So just, can I just tell you what Paul's saying here? You go home today, you're watching football or whatever you watch, if you don't watch football, whatever it is. And you're watching there and your TV shuts off and all of a sudden everything goes dark. And a bright light shows up. And an angel walks in. I mean, unmistakable, this is an angel. And you're dumbfounded like everyone else, right? And the angel tells to you, you can get to Jesus by some of your works. It's not faith alone. You can, you can do it if you try harder. And then he goes away. What Paul is saying is that you can look at that angel and you can say, you are not of Christ. And you know how many angels have done that because they're dark and they show up in light? And we believe. We count them accursed. Or if anyone else shows up to teach you something different, they knock on your door, they give you a King James Bible, and they try to show you a different way to God. Let them be accursed. Romans 16, I appeal to you, brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites and by their smooth talk. I'm glad I don't smooth, I'm not a smooth talker. I just don't feel like I'm that way. I stumble. And flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive, although I can think of one that would fit this really well. Um, no one in here. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But listen to this. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. We all, in a very godly, very Jesus-honoring way, should read this passage right here. And when Paul is warning us that we don't need to be being naive, we all should kind of be like, 
I don't want to be naive. There should be some kind of this holy stepping up of, I don't want to be caught up by these people. I've spent a lot of my life being naive, and it was bad. Didn't have very good ends sometimes. First Timothy chapter 6, I'm going to give you one more. And guys, this is out of like a billion verses in the, in the, in the New Testament that speaks about false teachers, but this is a great one. First Timothy chapter 6. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissensions and slander and evil suspicion and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That's like self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Pretty serious passages in the scripture teaching us the danger of, of false teaching. And it didn't end with the church. False teaching has continued even, even in our day that have found ways to, to peddle God's word for, for money or to cause controversies of their, for their own uh, enjoyment or to show that they are better than, than others. It hasn't stopped in, in, in our day. Just go to a, a, a bookstore, a Christian bookstore or secular bookstore, and you'll find that most in those bookstores are theological dumpster fires. But they look pretty, and they, they look good. And I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example book. I'm not going to tell you the title. I'm not going to tell you the author. But this is a quote from their book. Unlike Scripture, the words I use from Jesus are not inerrant. Nevertheless, I will present them as first-person speech from Jesus himself. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. That more was the presence of Jesus. Something beyond the ordinary means of grace. So I was ready to begin a new spiritual quest. I began to wonder if I, too, could receive messages during my times of communing with God. Sounds awesome. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, if, if, if you're in Christ and you're desiring more, like, I want to hear what this person has to say. I, I desire more. They desire more. We should get together and talk. Well, they gave me a book. I can read it. We can talk. Oh, and it's a devotional. I can do this every day. Sounds good. Sounds right. Sounds authentic. So what's the problem? The Bible. Simply the Bible. What's the problem? Whereas this book takes the Scripture and other resources turns them into the first-person voice of Jesus, makes them sound authoritative so that, they could, so that the reader of the devotion or each whatever it is they're reading that day, that they could feel the presence of Jesus encouraging them. And the point of that is to encourage them to trust Jesus more. What could be wrong with that? Trusting Jesus more. And that is how you can enjoy Jesus' presence. By trusting him more. That's, I don't know if you've picked it out yet, but the Bible has a very completely different foundation 
in how we experience the presence of Christ. The Bible says that in Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit that they do not speak apart from the Word of God. We experience the presence of Jesus Christ through the Scriptures. Sola Scriptura. We experience the presence of Jesus Christ through the Scriptures, through the public preaching of the the Scriptures. And when we sit down and read the Scriptures and we meditate, that's where we find Christ. Not reading some devotion because we want to see more of Jesus. That's saying that this is not enough. And God has revealed Himself in this. There is definitely easier heretical books to pick out false teachers, but I figured with this one, I wanted to show you how subtle it can creep into our lives and sound so good to the church, but yet it is so damaging. Because what this does, yeah, it doesn't destroy the church, but it certainly takes a whack at the foundation, doesn't it? It takes hits at the, at the, the foundation of Scripture alone. And guess what? Since 2004, over 2 million Christians bought this book. 2 million. 2 million. I might have misread that. It might be 20, but two sounds better. They ate it up because it sounds good and it made them feel good. Made them feel good. What a shallow foundation in the, the Word of God. So we have to figure out for ourselves then what can be trusted. We have to have discernment according to the Scriptures, not by our own authority, but the, the authority of the, the Word of God. Now, to be honest, most of you are not going to go out and buy volumes of systematic theology. Maybe a few. You're not going to go out and buy Calvin's Institutes, which is totally free on the internet. Don't buy them. And you're going to read them. Most of us are not going to go learn Greek and Hebrew to, to expound the Scriptures and get to the depths of the Word of God, to figure out, to be discerning on how to deal with these kind of things. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we file these, figure out these false teachers, expose them as Jesus exposed them? Well, let me give you four questions. Let me give you four questions that are easy to remember so that when we are listening, when we are reading, and when we're on social media, which is filled with dumb things. There's good things too, by the way. Um, things that we, could be, we can be tipped off. These questions can tip us off to how dangerous and how binding they are. Let me give them real quickly. Number one, number one, how do they handle the Scripture? How do they handle the Scriptures? How do they treat the Scriptures? Are they authoritative to them? Is, is how they are presenting or teaching about God, how God has revealed himself in the Scripture. Another really big book that came out a couple years ago presented God, had some lovely things about God's love and certain things, but presented God in a very horrific way. Is he sovereign? Is he holy? Is he righteous? Is he just? Is he good and loving? Do they take any of those attributes and, and over-elevate them against any others? Do they take God as loving, therefore he can no longer give any wrath? Or he's, never, he's not going to act in his justice anymore? Or is he only what people think they want God to be like? And so they write books so they can sell more and make money. 
You see, there is a lot of doubts around the scriptures. We, we get that. There's lots of conjectures that our world has, and there are lots of people who have, who have even created new denominations, new religions, and embracing the idea that there are doubts, that there are fallacies, that there are errors, and there are mistakes, and everything is just kind of a fairy tale. It didn't really happen, but it's written for us to become better people in some way or another. Once again, the problem is what the Bible says about itself. It would not agree with them. It's living, it's active, it's able to discern the thoughts of men. The Bible's written in a span of a thousand years or or so. A thousand years or so written by totally several different men. Over over a thousand years, different guys from different places, different backgrounds, different education levels, and they all come together in 66 books to a complete cohesiveness and unity that is unparalleled. Unparalleled. There's, there is no other religion that I can see, that I've been able to find, that, that through the power of the gospel, that 2,000 years ago, people that were saved under the preaching of Paul by the same power, radically transformed and conformed, can be the exact same way that we are radically transformed and conformed to Christ. By the power of the preaching of the word of God. And by the authority of the word of God. The question is, is whether we're going to submit to it. That's, real, that's the real question that people ask. It's not a question of if it's true or not. The question is, there are, you just don't want to submit to it. So therefore, you think it's not true. And then you've got big problems if you believe that. Because that doesn't work out in anything else in life. One of the main reasons why I love to read, read the Reformers is because they, they, they knew of a time like ours where there was lots of false garbage that people were saying about God and teaching about God. In fact, it was said that there was, uh, there was the false teachers and the, uh, the ignorance that was happening pervasive in the church of that day. The priests, um, a majority of the priests in, in the Catholic Church during the, even after the Reformation started, when they engaged the New Testament for the first time, because now the New Testament was becoming something that they can actually read, when they read it for the first time, they thought Martin Luther wrote it. They thought Luther wrote it. They never even read it. They don't even know. The Reformers knew of a time when false teachers was the actual church. It was actually the church. It was big buildings, and and they had all the power, and they could do whatever they want. But that's what set the whole Reformation in motion. It was the spark of the authority of Scripture I can't remember who said this, and I, I think maybe Bill might have said it a couple of weeks ago, uh, quoting one of the reformers, probably Luther. But he said that a, a common man with the scriptures in their hands that they can read has more authority than all the popes and councils combined. I think he's speaking, of course, the authority of scripture, but the priesthood of the believer. But how do the false teachers, that's one question we can ask, how do false teachers handle the word of God? Okay, second question. Is there anything that they add to the cross? Is there anything that they add to the cross? Here's what I mean. Scriptures are very clear that Jesus Christ died once and for all for those who are being saved. He was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. The work of our justification has been completely done. So anyone who who comes and says, believe in the cross of Christ and dot, dot, dot. The big church in our town believes 
believe in the cross of Christ and then get baptized. And then you'll be saved. We're Baptists and we don't even believe that. And there's no and. There's, there's no and in solas Christos. There's none. It's in Christ alone. Our salvation has been accomplished by, by Him alone. Everything now, everything now then that takes place after our, our salvation, after our regeneration, is done by the, the work of the Holy Spirit through sanctification, through the renewing of our mind, through the, through the Scripture. And this justification that we received in Christ alone has been given freely to us by grace through faith. Do they add anything to that message? Do they add anything to it? Number three, what's being taught about the nature of man? This is a good one. Is man essentially good in their nature, only to choose the right and wrong paths of actions? Is man only shaped by their surrounding culture? Is man the center of God's universe? And all that he is doing for, for, and all that God is doing throughout the scripture is for man alone? And, and, and if that's true, then what a failure God would be, wouldn't it? If, if God's whole purpose in his existence is to be centered around us, wouldn't God be a failure? Because think about it, after the fall, for, for billions of people have done nothing but reject God. What a failure. But that's not true. We know that God is not centered on man, but he is centered on himself. Soli Deo, Gloria, to the glory of God uh, alone. Man by our nature is not good. Yes, we can still do good things even in our unredeemed state, but at our core, in our nature, we are corrupt. I, I picked this up from uh, Matt Chandler. I just thought this was so good. He said, he said that, that this, this doctrine, the doctrine of the pravity of, of, of man, is one, it's like almost one of the only doctrines that we have thousands of years of objective evidence that it's true, that we are just wicked. And no matter how good we get, like with our, with our education, with our technology, with our airplanes and lasers and robots and all these things, we only think of more ways to, be, to show our depravity. And we show our wickedness. This is an important question. This is an important question. What do, people, what do they believe about the nature of man? This is an important question because we need a Savior. This is what the Pharisees completely missed. We need a Savior. And if you soften up on the nature of man, then you're going to try to be your own Savior. You're going to try to be your own Savior. Question number four, what about the person of Jesus? Is he God? Is the incarnate Son of God? Is he, is he the God who absorbed the, the wrath of God? Or is he just another good teacher with, with lots of good rules and ethics that I'm probably not going to follow anyways? What is he? If he's a teacher... If, if a teacher or whoever leaves off the God part to Jesus, the Son of God, if they leave the God off, then, then they have completely left Christianity altogether. No matter what they call themselves, no matter what robe, no matter what pulpit they stand in, no matter what the sign says on the outside, if they declare anything less than that, then they have completely left Christianity altogether. Brothers and sisters, we do not want to fall into a ditch or follow blind guides to our death. We do not want to follow hypocrites. 
So I want to ask this morning as we close, do you, do you want to follow blind guides? Do you want to follow hypocrites who have logs in their eyes or still trying to pull these things out and, but yet still try to find specks in yours? False teachers, legalists, blind guides, hypocrites are, are everywhere. And they want nothing more than to lead us to be just like them. And when they do that, that's our only end, is to be just like them. Or, brothers and sisters, do we want to make the choice that the Reformers made? Do we want to make the choice that the Reformers made before us, hundreds of years before, to see God's grace, to see God's Word, and then basically ask those exact same questions I gave you, and yet stand for the truth? To not to continue to follow blind guides and hypocrites, who look good, who look smart, who have a good-looking book and a popular book and have all the power and all the authority, but to stand for what's true. And that's what they did. They, they, they stood because they had no choice but to bring reform and to stand for what is true. Now, two, two weeks ago, a biography was released on Desiring God by Tony Rinke. And, and I don't know, what's my time? I'm going to read it because I want it to anyways. And I want to read this to you guys. And, it, and it's just a proved point of, of this example. It says, The drama of the Protestant Reformation casts big personalities and major characters, the types of men now etched into myths, legend, and giant stone figures. But the Reformation is also the story of everyday, ordinary followers of Christ, mostly forgotten who lived out Reformation theology on the ground and who paid the price for it with their lives. Martyrs like Helen Stirk. Helen was a fairly average Scottish Christian in the city of Perth, dedicated to daily domestic work as a wife and a mother. Her life remained unnoticed to history and to the birth of her last child in 1544. When the time arrived for Helen's labor and delivery, Catholic tradition called for earnest prayers to the Virgin Mary. Having a good sense of Scripture, Helen repudiated these, these petitions. It was a tradition she would not follow. Her baffled midwives pressed her to make such a prayer, but she refused the ritual. The physical risk of pregnancy and having a baby was, was real, but these prayers were nothing more than superstitious insurance. She said, if I had lived the days of the virgin, Helen said with poise, God might have looked uh, likewise to my humility and my base estate, and as he did the virgins, and might have made me the mother of Christ. Her childbed sermonette must have triggered gasps. But Helen was settled and comforted by her theology knowing her prayers were going directly to God through her Savior, Jesus Christ. News of Helen's refusal to pray to Mary and her bold claim that she was on equal standing before God very soon found its way to the ears of the local Catholic clergy and quickly up the chain to the presiding cardinal. His response was swift to snuff out the spark of their Protestant theology. Before long, Helen was arrested and imprisoned along with her husband and four other outspoken Protestants in the city. The small group was soon found guilty of heresy and sentenced to death. The following day, soldiers brought Helen, her husband, 
and the condemned Protestants to the gallows. Helen asked to die side by side with her husband, James. But her request was denied. Men were to be hanged, women were to be drowned, and James would go first. Holding onto her young child in her arms, Helen approached her husband, kissed him, and gave these parting words. Husband, be glad, for we lived together many joyful days. And this day, which we must die, we ought to esteem the most joyful of all, because we shall have joy forever. Therefore, I will not bid you good night, for we shall... I can't even read anymore. For we shall shortly meet in the kingdom of God. James was hung before her eyes. Her life on earth done. Eyes fell on Helen. He was forced to hand her newborn to the nurse entrusted with the child's care from that point forward. The authorities led Helen to a nearby pond. They bound her hands and feet, put her into a large gunny sack along with stones of weight, and they threw her into the water like a bag of garbage, all for the crime of blaspheming the Virgin Mary. Heaven has all the details, but this is all we know about Helen's life. She was a bold woman, made strong by the Scripture. Her birthbed claim that she was equally qualified to be, be the mother of Jesus was radically ceremonial insubordination. But at the heart, it was an act of faith, rendering the strata of all human superiority irrelevant in the presence of Christ's superior supremacy. Look deeper into the Reformation and you will see it more than printing presses and theses nailed on doors and theological debates. It's a story of ordinary believers. Husbands, wives, fathers, and mothers poised in the words of the Scripture, reclaiming the, pro the, the primacy of Jesus Christ for their lives, their marriages, their families, and their eternal hopes who stand as a cloud of witnesses calling us to do likewise. They call us to hold our biblical convictions without wavering, to enjoy God's earthly blessings, and to endure all momentary afflictions now for the great eternal joy set before us. You see, brothers and sisters, this, the Reformation was not just about the correcting of the church, but it was about the, re the reforming of our hearts the reforming of the, the hearts of men and women. And the Reformation has not ended. We still face much false teaching, including uh, the, the greatest of all false teaching that we hear the most, and that is our own hearts. So let us, as the great cloud of witnesses who have gone, up, gone before us, who stand and cheer us on as we speak, that we would hold fast to Scripture alone. Live by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And until Christ's return, may we continue to drink of the new wine of the gospel and drink it together as his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Grant us wisdom and grace as we respond now to your glory. Amen.